We're going to be in Joshua chapter 8 tonight. Joshua chapter 8 is where we want to turn to. I just kind of kind of review uh, what we have looked at already in this great book. And beginning from the time where in chapter 5 they had crossed the Jordan River where the Lord miraculously held the waters back uh, from flowing at flood stage so they could draw a crossover on dry ground. That was quite the miracle as, as, as it was before when they crossed the Red Sea. But they did all cross over safely and they stopped in a place that they named Gilgal. It's a place of consecration. As a matter of fact, Gilgal would be returned uh, or they would return to Gilgal on more than one occasion during the conquests and much later still. Even Samuel, the prophet and the last judge of Israel, uh, used Gilgal as one of his headquarters when he was judging the nation uh, several years after this part of the story. But in Gilgal, it was a place of remembrance. They set up an altar so that they could remember that the Lord had held the waters of the Jordan back so they could cross over on dry, dry land. And it was a beautiful place of remembrance. It was also a place of renunciation or consecration, if you will, uh, sanctification involving the fact that they needed to be circumcised to separate themselves apart from the other nations uh, and be in obedience to the command that God gave to Abraham. And none of them had been circumcised who had wandered in the wilderness. So the entire uh, nation of men had to be circumcised there at Gilgal before they moved forward into the conquest of the land. And thirdly, at Gilgal, it was a place for renewal. They renewed their commitment to the Lord through the uh, observation of circumcision and also the observation of the Passover, which they hadn't observed uh, um, all during the time of the wilderness journeying as well. Now remember, in the wilderness journeying, God fed them six days out of seven with manna from heaven. Men ate angels' food, the psalmist says, and they did that consistently throughout their wilderness journeyings. And when they crossed over to the other side of the Jordan, when they camped at Gilgal, there was no longer any manna given to them. They had to take what was available from the land for the very first time in 38 years. Now, uh, they're again forming this understanding that God wants to lead them and that over the course of the first five books, God repeatedly told Moses, I will go in there with you, I will go before you, and I will take care of the nations. If you will let me lead, I'll do a pretty good job. God consistently told Moses these things. Moses conveyed those same thoughts to Joshua. And over the course of the first several chapters of the book of Joshua, we find God reassuring Joshua, be of good courage, be strong and courageous. He wanted Joshua to know that everything would work out all right as long as he put his trust in him. And so the conquest of Jericho was one such example where God did something very, very different than the way any man would have thought with regard to the conquest of a city. And so in that conquest, God again showed that my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. They're beyond your finding out. 
And this is true throughout the book of Joshua. We'll see it over and over again. However, there are times when they just simply neglected to ask God. And Ai was one of those times. We looked at that the last time. When we got together last time, we read the story of the defeat of the Israelites at Ai because they were very presumptuous, for one, and they went in thinking that they could handle this. It's just a small city, nothing like the walled city of Jericho, and certainly they could deal with this smaller city with just a few thousand men. They figured two to three thousand men would be all they needed. Don't bother asking God for direction here, Joshua. Let's just go ahead and take care of it with our own means by which we could do it. They might have been able to do it if they had asked the Lord first, but that again was not God's way. Now we're going to see, of course, the other reason that we have seen that they did not have victory at Ai is because when they took Jericho, they were expressly warned by the Lord not to take any of the spoils because they were to go to the Lord as kind of a first fruits offering unto the Lord. They were considered to be off limits to everyone. No one was to take any spoil. It was exclusively for the Lord. However, just one man in the entire nation that invaded the city of Jericho decided, and apparently he and his family as well, to take a bunch of silver and gold and some clothing that they found there that they lusted after, they desired it, and they took it. And as a result, God punished the entire nation. And again, we're reminded, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So these are really very, very important illustrations, examples to us as we enter into the conquest of our Canaan, if you will. This life is very much pictured for us in the conquest of Canaan. This life of a believer that we are all experiencing is given through examples, the way that God wants us to follow him, to trust in him, to be obedient to him, to remember the things that he has done, to renounce sin in our lives, and to be renewed daily in fellowship with him. These are the things that we're reminded of as we've gone through already these first seven chapters. And now we come to chapter 8, where we find now that they have dealt with the AI problem, with the uh, Jericho problem, rather, that resulted in the problem of not being able to get the uh, city of AI into their possession. Now they're ready to go. But now also, they're willing and ready to hear what God says they must do. And it makes all the difference in the world. They went into AI without God's leading. Now they're going to get the instruction from the Lord before they take the next step. And that's what chapter 8 is mostly all about. So verse 1 of chapter 8 now says, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor dismayed. Again, he was very troubled. He had fallen on his face before the Lord asking, Why did this happen? He was a very disappointed man. But God says again, for now about the fifth, I think, time in this book, Don't be discouraged. Do not be afraid. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, 
and his land. And you shall do to Ai and to its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So what God is saying here is, look, instead of 3,000 men, take all the men of war with you. Now, he's not going to use every one of them in this, but he wants them all to go with Joshua to face the city of Ai. He says, you're going to do it differently than you did with the city of Jericho. And isn't that amazing how God does things differently so often? You know, we can't put God in a box. Sometimes he does what he did with Jericho, surprising us with some very, very unusual methods by which he accomplishes his will for us. Here, he's going to do something completely different than what he did at Jericho. And they might have thought, perhaps, okay, he's getting us all together and we're going to circle around the city just like we did at Jericho and we'll be able to defeat the city of Ai in much the same way. That isn't how it's going to work. And so here now he's giving the plan to Joshua and he says again, take all the people of war with you. Go up to Ai and he's assured them that he has given Ai into their hands. But he's also saying something very important here. Unlike with Jericho, he's saying in verse 2 it says, It's spoil, it's cattle, you shall take his booty for yourselves. It was for the Lord in the first time. This not, it's not the case here. They get the spoils this time. I'm sure they were encouraged by that, that, that perhaps they thought because they messed up in Jericho, they would never be able to take the spoils perhaps, not really sure if that's true, but the idea that is being presented here is that God does indeed want them to benefit from the work that they are doing when they're doing it in submission to his will. That's still very much important for us as well, as well to know and understand about the God that we serve. He does want to bless us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, but we have to remember we must remain attached to the vine. It is in Christ that we can take advantage of all those blessings. And when we fall away, when we slip, we stumble, we turn aside to other things, we miss out on the blessings that God has in store for us. So he's telling them, you're going to take the city, you're going to do it my way, and you will be the beneficiary of those spoils that you will take from the city. So he says in verse 3, So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose just 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. There's a reason for this. We'll get to that in a moment. He took just 30,000 of the many thousands of men that he had with him. And they went on a separate mission. Joshua and the rest are going to stay behind. He tells us in verse 4, And he commanded those 30,000, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. So they're going to circle around the backside of the city, unbeknownst to the residents of Ai. They're going to be setting an ambush at the backside between the city of Ai and the city of Bethel. And there's another group that will also be participating in that kind of a situation where they'll be protecting their flanks. Very, very careful to do precisely what the Lord tells him to do. 
And this is the plan that God has devised. He says in verse 5, Then I, Joshua, and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us at the first, as at the first, that we shall flee before them. For they will come out, they will come out after us till we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say, they are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them. Isn't it interesting that God is actually using the situation that they faced in the previous encounter with the army of Ai to take this strategy that he's put in place now because he knows that the same thing is going to take place if they come before the city of Ai like they did the last time and when they see the army from Ai coming out of the city and they turn and run, they would assume correctly that the people of Ai would believe that they're running just like they did the first time, they're scared of us, let's go get them. That was just simply a tactic that God used on this occasion because, again, it's something that they tried to do that ended up being, in a previous plan, a failure. And now God's going to use it to bring glory to his name. Verse 7 says, Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be, when you have taken the city, that you shall set the city on fire, according to the commandment of the Lord you shall do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua therefore sent them out, and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. The other men who were with him remained encamped just outside of range of the city of Ai. The 30,000 got into position. That was what they did over that night. And Joshua and his other men with him rested through the night, waiting for the next morning. It says in verse 10, Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So they're on the north side and the 30,000 are hiding and the other 5,000 are on the west side. So they're completely encircled the city with the exception of the Jordan River. They had no place to go. There's a valley between them. It's a perfect place for a battle to ensue. Remember, in those days it was an advantageous position to have the higher ground. And the last time, as the Israelites approached Ai, the men from Ai were at an advantage because they were on the upper side. Now they're sitting on the opposite side of the valley, so there is no advantage yet that the people from Ai would have. But now they're going to begin to move and Again, the assumption will be, and it's a correct one, that as soon as they begin to move forward at the lower end of the valley, then the men of, from Ai will come for an attack, thinking they have the advantage, and they'll see the Israelites begin to flee, and that will be 
the advantage that would be uh, uh, Joshua's to take. So it says in verse 14, Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people, at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. So apparently men in an army from Bethel had joined Ai armies and they were together in the city of Ai. They all emptied the city going after the people of Israel and it tells us again in verse 17, there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They thought they had a great opportunity to crush the people of God. And that's something that I think the world needs to understand. The people of God will never lose. The people of God are the people of God. And He will protect them. He will make sure that He has a remnant. Always has and he always will. And they will remain his people. And that's something for us to keep in mind. Especially in these last days when so many are actively pursuing uh, a method of bringing the nation of Israel to a non-existent condition. They want to destroy this nation that God so loves. They want to take over the land that God calls his land. It just simply will not happen. We know that because we know the end of the story. But the world doesn't. They think that there is fear in the hearts of every Israeli and they're going to take advantage of that fear and they'll take that moment to strike when they sense that there is a great deal of fear among the people. And quite frankly, if you look at what's going on in the nation of Israel right now, there is such disunity just like it is here in this country but perhaps even to a greater extent in Israel. They're a much smaller nation and the dissension against the government is a very, very serious problem presently. And quite frankly, that doesn't bode well for their security. We'll see what happens. We don't really know. But I think that there is a boldness that is beginning to form among the Israelite enemies. And it has to happen. The Ezekiel War, I believe, is just around the corner. It has to be fulfilled. Russia, Iran, Turkey, Libya, Sudan. We don't know how many others may be involved, but we know the majority of players are in place. There was a little bit of an issue with Libya just this last week, in fact. The uh, Prime Minister of Israel sent a, an, a, an ambassador to Libya and he met with one of the leaders in Libya who greeted him kindly and talked about the idea of normalization. Well, that particular Libyan official was forced out of the country and Libya has made a statement just yesterday 
that there is no normalization that will be had with the nation of Israel. So they're right in place with what needs to be done. We'll see what happens. But that's the way it is now, and that has always been the way it was for the people of Israel. No different here in the situation with AI that they're facing. So they pursued Israel, just exactly as God had intended for them to do. And then it says in verse 18, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush around arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. So the signal was, when I lift my spear... That is the time to go into the city and burn it to the ground. Very effective, very efficient, very impressive means by which they are taking the city. By the way, as he held that spear in his hand, I wonder if he gave any thought to the time when he, as the general that was chosen by Moses to lead the people of Israel in the time of the wilderness journeyings against the Amalekites. You may remember the story. Joshua went to battle, Moses went up on a high hill and he raised his hands and when his hands were raised they won against the Amalekites. But his hands were tired and his hands began to drop and when they fell down lower then the Amalekites would begin to have an advantage over the Israelites. So the two men who were with Moses, Ben, uh, I mean her, not Ben-Hur, her and Aaron, helped him by lifting his hands, and they held his hands up high all through the time of the battle. Well, it appears that Joshua is going to continue to hold that spear up high throughout this battle. It's interesting to note, and perhaps, again, it may have been a subtle reminder to him of what God did when he went to battle on behalf of his friend Moses. I'm looking for where I ended up leaving off. I'm thinking that we should probably go back a little ways to verse 19. So there was an ambush that uh, they arose quickly out of their place and they ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand and they entered the city and took it and they hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw and behold, the smoke of the city ascended into heaven so that they had no power to flee this way or that and the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. So now, when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them, so that they were caught in the midst of Israel, and some on this side and some on that side, and they struck them down so that there was none left except one person. They could not escape. None of them could. They all were killed except for the king of Ai. They took him alive and brought him to Joshua. In verse 24 it says, And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness, there where they, where they pursued them, and, and when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword, so that it was... All, that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. Quite a slaughter 
And again, you have to realize that this was absolutely necessary from God's perspective. The people of Canaan were a wicked people and they had over 400 years to repent from their wickedness. But God knew that they would not. And he knew that they needed to be eradicated if Israel was to be successful in living in the land and continuing to serve him alone. If any of them would remain, there would be temptation among the people of Israel to follow after the gods of the Canaanites. And you all know, of course, that that's exactly what did take place. But here at the beginning, they were obedient to what God had said. Eradicate all of those who were in the city of Jericho, and they did, and also all of those who were in the city of Ai, and they did. They destroyed all of them. It says in verse 27, only the livestock and the spoil of that city, Israel took his booty for themselves according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua turned Ai, or burned Ai, and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. So they killed him and then hung him on a tree as an example to all of the other Canaanites. I'm sure that there might have been some who were at a distance watching what was going on from the city of Bethel, and word must have spread like wildfire. This is what happened to Ai. They know already what happened to Jericho. Word is absolutely the fastest thing that goes around in those days. It can move very quickly, and it would have done quite well uh, by the time they got into the central part of the land, as we will find out momentarily. But he says in verse 29, The king of Ai, Ai hanged on a tree until evening, and as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. It's interesting to note, by the way, that there has not been any certainty as to the exact location of the city of Ai. Again, it was a smaller city, but its footprint was totally, completely destroyed and there's no evidence of where it might have been. We only know that it was on the western side of Jericho, moving up towards the mountain range, that they ultimately would cross over. And once they crossed over that, they would be entering into the central area of the nation of the Canaanites. And it's somewhat south of the Sea of Galilee that they are going to ultimately arrive at their next destination, in the middle of the land, perfectly situated to move into battle, both in the southern and in the northern directions. But before they do that, they've got to do something that Moses had commanded Joshua and the people long before this. And it's explained here in this latter part of chapter 8, that they stop at this particular location in obedience to what Moses had said that they must do. What Moses had said is recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy. So I'd like for us to turn there before we continue in the latter part of chapter 8 in this book of Joshua and take a look now at uh, what God has spoken through Moses with regard to that which was required of the people of Israel when they get into the land. So in verse 1 of the book of Deuteronomy, we read, 
Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. That's important. He's going to give them a set of commands at that particular time that they need to make sure they understand and obey. He's already given them the Ten Commandments. He's already given them the law. But this is a set of commandments that he's giving to them for this particular purpose that we see, that we'll read about next in the book of Judges. In verse 2 it says, And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be, when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar of, to the Lord, and it's an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings, and you shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. And again, he's talking about that which he's about to give them in those commands that he has yet to present to them. It's important because a lot of people believe that Joshua took the time to write on those white stones, as we will look at it in a few minutes, the entire five books of the Pentateuch. I don't believe that that was so. But it was a very specific group of commands that God was through Moses giving to his people that they needed to know and observe at that location. It was a place of, again, consecration unto the Lord, a setting apart of the people of God that they had to obey, and if they did obey, they would receive blessings. If they did not obey, they would receive cursings. So again, finishing off in Deuteronomy chapter 27, he says, Then Moses and the priests, in verse 9, and the Levites spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day. Now there, after that, in the rest of the chapter, he gives the curses on Mount Ebal that they are to recite. And then in chapter 28, the blessings on Mount Gerizim that they are to recite. Now Mount Ebal and Gerizim are very close to one another, and there's a valley that's formed between them, and you can go there to Israel, and it's very close to what was the territory of, or the town of Shechem, where Abraham arrived, and, and also Jacob, in that land of Canaan. So it's a very, very important parcel of land that they're coming to, that has great meaning to them, historically, and in the future as well. The only place that is there in that area today is the city of Nablus. And I believe Nablus is under Palestinian control. And it's a really very bad place, a trouble spot for the people of Israel. But they gathered there and they made this thing that Moses had instructed them to become a reality for the people of God. 
Verse 30 of chapter 8 of the book of Joshua continues by saying, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Two different kinds of offerings are made here. The burnt offering is a whole offering unto the Lord. The peace offering is an offering that they give unto the Lord. It's burned by fire, and they get a portion of it, as well as giving a portion to the Lord. They're eating in communion with God at this peace offering. It's a time of coming together and being one with their God. Note also that they followed the exact commands of Moses not to use any iron tools to build this altar. It had to be a plain, natural altar. Nothing fancy, nothing made by men's craft. It had to be God's way. Otherwise, it would not have been accepted by God. But they obeyed exactly the command that was given to them. Now, in verse 32, it continues and it says, And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger, as well as he who was born among them, Half of them were in front in Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. So they did exactly as Moses had done, with every detail. Now, it's interesting that they wrote this law that Moses had given to them on these stone lime tablets, if you will. I wonder if they will ever be found. I wonder what ever happened to them. I don't think they're still there. If they are, they're buried somewhere in the mountains. It would be interesting if somebody doing an archaeological dig might someday find them. But nothing of that has happened yet. But we do know that this was done for a purpose. God, again, if you read through Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you'll see that his intent was for them to understand that if they did obey the commands that God had given them on that day that Moses presented to them, they would receive blessing. If they did not obey, they would receive curses from the Lord. And so that was something that actually was prophetic because it was exactly the way things worked out. They did not obey all of those commands and they did become the recipients of those curses that God had mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy in chapters 27 28. Lastly, it says afterward in verse 34, he read all the words of the law, which is the entire law, I believe, and the blessings and the cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Now, it takes quite a while to read through the five books of the Pentateuch and just imagine what kind of a gathering that must have been. Hundreds of thousands of people, men, women, and children, elderly and not so elderly, very young and very old, all of them gathered together on those two mountains. 
and they were listening to Joshua read the Pentateuch, the entire book of Moses. Quite an assembly. Kind of puts us to shame when we don't really like to stay in church very long unless we have a really special speaker. I suppose we'd probably stay in church long enough if our speaker was Joshua or Moses or maybe Jesus. But it's okay. We don't need to spend that much time on Sunday morning. But we do need to spend time with God every day. And I suggest to you that that is the way that you continue to live out your life as it is for me, so it should be for you. We need to be students of the Word. We need to read His Word regularly. We need to know His Word well. In these last days, there's no reason for us to be sloppy in our service to our King. When we turn to the right or to the left, when we slide a little bit here, fall off from the place where we are supposed to be, and don't pay attention to the commandments that God has put in our hearts to do for His glory, we end up having problems. It's not that He's going to cast us away. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But there is punishment. There's, well, chastisement that God will pour out on those who fall short of His will. It's always good for us to be mindful of that as we continue to seek to serve our God. And it is definitely a very, very important thing in these last days, I believe, that we continue wholeheartedly committed to serving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I hope that you're desiring to do so. I know I am. And I know there are many who are. And let's see if perhaps God might do something miraculous in our lives as we serve Him in these last hours. So... We didn't get that far tonight. Next Thursday, we'll try to get into a very, very interesting part of the story of the nation of Israel. And it's not, again, one of those happy ending stories, unfortunately, because, again, we find that there is a little bit less caution on the part of Joshua and his elders that they should have been very careful to check things out, to get more information from the people that they are confronted with, and to specifically to seek the Lord in determining what should they do with this people that they're going to be seeing in this part of the story that we'll look at next time in chapter 9. Until then, God bless you. Grace and peace.